Have you ever been confused or disconcerted about a religious teaching on what it means to be good? Anybody? I have, I have. I grew up in a, in a tradition in the 80s in the Bible Belt in Memphis, Tennessee. It was part of a thriving church. It was up to 1,500 at one point in, in Memphis. And a lot of the fruit of the Spirit was not present in the church. It was more, if you do this, God is happy. If you don't do this, God is mad. So it was a lot of checklist rules And to be honest, a lot of times Christian leaders and Sunday school teachers and different things, they looked more like the Pharisees in the scriptures than Jesus and his disciples. And I truly believe as a 43-year-old man that as I look back on those days that I believe they were doing the best with what they had with the teaching they'd been given. And um, praise God that his truth breaks through. But I remember a pivotal time in my life when I got a, a DC Talk cassette tape if you don't know DC Talk, it was some guys, I think from Liberty University, but they started a rap thing, that revolution. But it was like Christian music started getting good. And I had a 1988 Pontiac Grand Elm, maroon, two-door, Sparkomatic tape player. For those of you who are younger, cassette tapes were a form of media that you could listen to music. It was before the CD, but after the lithograph and gramophone, A-track player, you can Google it. But I had that thing, and, and the thing was pretty fast. There's a four-cylinder engine, but it, it was fast. It had a quad-four engine in it, aluminum head, which would eventually crack, so you're going to break down. So we worked on a lot of cars growing up. But when I broke down, I wanted to be jamming to DC Talk. I did. But I remember one of the battles in the church, because it was a lot of rules-oriented, is like, what is God's music, and what's the world's music? What's Satan's music? So we had this guy come as a guest speaker, come to our church. He was from Bill Gothard Ministries. And Bill Gothard may have had some good teaching along the way. I just never experienced it, so I don't know. So, But he basically came to expose to us what was godly music and what was not. And so he he demystified it for us. He didn't really open the scriptures, but he gave us a lot of good checkpoints. I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek, but he said, if something is in 3-4, that's God's meter. If it's in 4-4 four, four anything else, it's not God's, God's meter. And he critiqued a Sandy Patty album. She was a Christian artist back in the day. And he said, this album has 10 songs on it. Two songs are in God's meter. The rest shouldn't be listened to. And that was for real. I was told by one of my Sunday school teachers after that talk the man gave, he's like, DC talk. And he was like, man, if you're, Chad, if you're driving in your vehicle, and when I say it was my car, it was my mom's car, but I got to borrow it. If you're driving, jamming to DC Talk, someone pulls up next to you and they hear that, that bass and the drum beat, how are they gonna know if they can't hear the words? They're gonna think you're listening to worldly music and be in the world, not of the world. So there's a little proof text right there for his own benefit. And he's like, man, they could stumble and your witness will be hurt. And it was interesting, like those rules, that was just one little subsection of many, many rules. I had a lady who would, I'd come to church with my shirt untucked That's why I untucked my shirt this very day. But she would come. She was one of my friend's moms, and she would try to tuck in my shirt. I'm like, oh, wait, don't tuck in my shirt. I'll just do it. But it was really like, hey, you got to look good for God. And I was like, okay, okay. My brother and his crew, older, they just went into full-scale rebellion against all the rules. And it it got really, really crazy. Like, it was inner-city Memphis, and I, I was in middle school. He was in high school, had all his friends. They would actually... 
schedule and get into fights with other youth groups. And I'm not making that up. Bizarre. So someone come up to me after youth group and say, hey, Chad, are you going to Wendy's? And I was like, no, I think, you know, I got to ride with my brother home, but uh, I think they're fighting the Methodist church tonight. <laughs> and, and someone might ask like, Chad, how, what'd you learn in youth groups? It's like, hey, keep your hands up. Make sure you keep your head moving and don't let anybody get around the side of you or back behind you because that's going to be devastating. So that was the, and I looked at them and it was like, there's no life. They're filled with angst and just, there's so much distress in those lives. So I, I said, I'm not going to do that. So me and my crew, younger, we said, we're just going to follow our leaders and, and jump into this, this following Christ, which was these rules. And guess what? It didn't lead to life either. Neither one did. And so we think about here today as we go through the fruit of the Spirit series, you may have grown up in a Catholic school, maybe that was very rules-oriented and religion-based, where a lot of rules were given to you, do this and please God. Or or maybe you came from a, a place where you've done so much in your life that you feel like you're constantly behind the curve and you have to do more, do more, do more to earn God's approval and fill in the blank. And you, your, your base life is just driven by guilt, fear, or shame. Whatever it may be, I, I just want to ask the question today, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to grow in goodness? Because we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and today we hit goodness, and we're looking at goodness in the life of Christ. And say, so what is goodness? What are the challenges with goodness? What's the essence of goodness? And what is the anchor for growing in this goodness? And what I'd like to do is look at Jesus in John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at his declaration of him being the good shepherd, looking at verses 1 through 15. So I'd invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And let's hear these words of our Savior. Jesus says this, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, They will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd that does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. 
The first thing I'd like to think about before we jump into a few parts of what Jesus declares here is the, the challenge of goodness, the challenge of goodness. And if you come to a gathering like this, it would be easy for all of us to leave saying, I want to be good going home, or I need to be good, or I need to do better. And if that's the only thing you're saying as you leave here today, I, you've not hit the point. And so the challenge is that so often when we hear goodness, be good, we reduce goodness to external actions. It definitely has something to do with our external actions, but it is not that. That's just what the Pharisees fell into. And that's why Jesus said, you clean up the outside, but you're dead inside. And so we think if we reduce goodness down to just the law and we never look to the giver of the law, we've missed the point. And remember, you can study the law a whole bunch in the Old Testament, what Paul says about it in the New Testament. Just remember briefly, the law was given so that the people of Israel would know God's character, know what he desires, but also so that they would be living differently than the, the, the people around them. Because there was a lot of debauchery, there was a lot of killing going on, a lot, of, a lot of evil in the land. And he said, don't do that, don't be like them. Follow these things. In the New Testament, Paul talks about how the law in and of itself alone, apart from the giver of the law, will lead us to, to death. And it does, it produces, and it's limited. And I thought about this illustration talking with uh, Pastor Kevin. We were hanging out Wednesday night and he, he pulled this out of his hat. If you ever have to preach, hang out with Kevin Jameson. He's really good, so keep that in mind. But he thought about this, thinking about marriage. If you just look to the law and not the giver of the law, thinking about, okay, what, what's the law say about marriage? Don't commit adultery. That, that's a good one. That's a good one. It's essential for the commitment of marriage. But if you only do that and nothing else, you just look to the law, you will not have a good and thriving marriage. You will not have a marriage that's growing in intimacy if that's your only focus. But if you look to the law and say, man, I can learn about what God desires from that, but I need to look to the giver of the law. And we look at Ephesians chapter five and we see that the giver of the law is the one who's pursued our hearts. He gives us marriage and the picture of marriage, even if you're single here today, speaks to you because one day all marriages will end because it's a temporary picture of an eternal reality of Christ and his church, that Christ represents the bridegroom and the church represents the bride and he has pursued or sacrificially given his life for her. I did a wedding at, at uh, St. Vincent's yesterday for Midtown couple and it was a young lady, Aaliyah Edwards, who I got to see come to Sojourn in 2009, got to see her come to know Christ, got to baptize her and watch her grow and then meet this young man who's just passionate about her and passionate about life and missions and so many different things. And so they chose not to see each other before the wedding. And so I'm standing up there at the front with Grant and he's about to see his bride for the first time this day. And I always say this to the groom before the bride comes in. I say, brother, remember, this is a small but real picture of Christ's heart for the church. There's, there's no disappointment, there's joy, there's expectation. I say, remember this moment. May it be indelibly marked in your mind and heart. And so I, I summarize it a little quicker than that. That's, that would take a long time to say, but boom. So I preface that before too. But here she comes, boom. 
She's coming down the aisle and he sees her for the first time and he just starts weeping tears of joy because he's longed for her. He's pursued her. And do we dare imagine, dare imagine that Christ's affections and heart for you, for me, that that's his heart. That he doesn't look at his church with disappointment, that he looks at it with expectation to say, hey, the wedding day's coming. Hold fast, pursue me. So we look not just, it was funny too, yeah, just a side note. It, you know, we practiced the rehearsal and stuff, but he was so chomping at the bit. Like they came down and was to say, who gives us, woman to marry to this man, you know, and the, the parent says, uh, her family and I, and it, like he was going to grab her before I could ask the question. So I'm holding him back. It's like a raging blow. I was like, oh, hold on, Grant. Let me ask a question first, buddy. You're chomping at the bit. But in expectation, you're just moving forth. Thanks for letting me share that. I feel better now. <laughs> but we think about looking to the law versus the giver of the law. And we want to say, Lord, affect our hearts. Let us see as you see. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount briefly as we looked at Matthew chapter eight and the healing of the leper last week. And we were reminded that God internalizes the law. If you think you're doing good, you're not. We're all guilty. Paul says, if you're guilty in one part, you're guilty in the whole. It's, it's just what is true. And if we think we can do this in our own strength, we have not seen the truth. This is about grace. Grace is not opposed to effort but grace is opposed to earning. Grace does move us forward in action, but grace never says, I can earn anything from the Father. I can earn this, I can earn this. And we might easily look to Ephesians 2.10, talking about good works that God calls us to do, but hear this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And if you just read that verse, you might say, wow, I, I gotta get to these good works. I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. Own strength. But remember, it comes on the heels of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 before this verse 10 comes. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not by works, so that no one can boast. And if you look at the whole of scripture, you're reminded that there are so many parallels between those who trust in themselves and those who trust in God. I think about Jeremiah 17 and, and those who trust in man and mankind in their own strength, they're gonna be like a shrub in the desert, not being able to see when good comes. There's no root system. But those who trust in the Lord, they hope in the Lord, they're like a tree planted by streams of water. And even when drought comes, they produce fruit because it's not based on external circumstances. Their roots have grown down and they receive a sustenance of life that is beyond themselves. And we think about this, it, it isn't by grace that we're saved, just that, that is true, but it truly is by grace through faith that we live every day of our lives, every moment of our lives. We need that grace. And if you see me walking around and I'm holding my side and you ask me like, Chad, what's the matter? You're like, man, I was trying to produce goodness in my own strength and I just got a spiritual hernia, so pray for me. That's a little funny, it didn't go over too well in the first service either, but. The picture is this, it's like, hey, produce peace in your life, the peace that passes under the peace of Christ. Okay, so I'm anxious, I'm gonna produce it. Oh man, spiritual hernia right there. Because we can't do it. We can't do it. It's a byproduct of a relationship with Christ. It's growing. 
As Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he can confront our pharisaical tendencies because there's a little Pharisee in all of us. And we want to hear this word. He says some, some verses through this text and beyond. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Verse six, Jesus used his figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, verse eight. And then listen to the dissension and the division in verses 19 and following. The Jews heard these words and were divided again. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Dude's crazy. Such a radical message. Dude's crazy. But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so there's an inner wrestling within us. Are these words, they're too good to be true. They don't match up with my earthly experience quite often in, in the relationships that I have. And these Pharisees, remember, they're the scholars of the day. They've been to their seminary. They've been teaching. They know the Torah. They have the Old Testament with them. And they, they've got it memorized. They've got all these things going out, but they've missed the main point, relationship with God. One of the problems of legalism about being good in our own strength is that it becomes about me and my performance. And when we get so hyper-focused and our flesh is really good about hyper-focusing on ourselves and just getting stuck there, we don't look to God and we don't look to others and we get trapped. Christianity is not less than obedience. There's a lot to obey in the Christian life, but it is so much more than that. And before we move on to the next point, Jesus says, all who come before me are thieves and robbers. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the gate. You come to the Father through me. And if someone preaches a message other than Jesus, if someone says, go find life in this place, they're robbing you of something. And the true life is found in Christ alone. And, and just a word, as, as we grow older, many... I've loved the men's Bible study that we've had on Saturdays. We've taken a little break here this summer. We'll pick it back up sometime in August. But I'm, I'm fascinated through Christian biography through my own life as I grow closer to the middle of my 40s is that quite often you think if you go further along the path in Christianity, things are gonna get easier. You'll have less temptation. Things will fall more into place. But what we find often time and time again is, is it usually gets harder. Temptations come raging in new ways. Even as we seek to, to prune off things in our life that were old defense mechanisms, we find that we may hurt more than we did in the past. We may wanna to run to things more than we did in the past. Prayer may become harder. There are times where the dark night of the soul is a reality. But the truth is, it's not about our strength to climb out of that. We do have effort and we are invited but there's something much more. So with that in mind, with the challenge we face, let's look at the essence of goodness, point two. I think the essence of goodness is found in verse 10 where Jesus says this, I have come, and this God incarnate, Jesus, son of God, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I've come that you can have life, that you may have life and have it to the full. And so I think immediately, like, what is life? If Christ's life is growing in me, goodness is gonna grow, but what is life? What does it mean to have a full life? 
And one story came to mind over and over again as I prayed and reflected on this passage, because I, I think so much in time, so, so many of us, most of us, we, we think, if I'm going to get life, I got to go get it. I got to scrape and claw. No one's going to give it to me. I'm going to work. I'm going to work. I got to do this. And we think about the story of the prodigal son, and it's an amazing story Jesus tells that displays the father's heart, but it, it displays how we are in the Christian life as well. And the younger son goes to his father and it's really disgraceful what he does. He goes to the father and says, I want my inheritance now. I'm tired of this. I'm leaving the family. And the, the father graciously lets him go. And he goes and spends all his money on prostitutes and drinks and gambling, all these things. Ends up penniless, hungering and dying in a pigsty as a Jewish man. And he rehearses in his mind, even, even my father's servants have better than this. And so he's gonna go home. And so he starts walking home. He's rehearsing this repentance, which really isn't even full repentance. It's more like just, I'm sorry, just demote me. And the father had every reason. Remember this is displaying the father. He, he could have just stood there. He said, no, you left. You treated me like I'm dead. You're dead to me. But the radical nature of this story is that the heart of God, it's almost, it, it is shameful that a, a father in those days would see a rebellious son coming and he girds up his loins and he sprints towards his son. He stops his son in his repentance speech and he embraces him and he says, he showers low, get a robe, get a ring, slaughter the fattened calf. We're having a party. My son was lost, but now he's found. He's, he's home, he's home. And the son experiences life. He tried to experience life, the full life by doing everything on his own with money, with everything else this world has to offer. But then we shift to the older brother. Did the older brother experience life? Well, he did all the rules. He did everything his father said. But guess what? He didn't experience life either. What was the fruit in his heart? And it revealed his utter need. He was jealous. He was bitter. He was despondent. He wouldn't even go into the party. And the father meets him where he's at and invites him. Both of them had life, but they couldn't even see it. And quite often in life, we have to be beat up. We have to pursue things. And then we come to the end of ourselves and it's like, man, there's no life in this. There's no life in just the rules. There's no life in just running after the desires of my flesh. Life is with the Father in his home, in his love. Pascal says it like this. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by the creator himself. Every one of us, there's a black hole inside that can't be filled by anything other than God himself. And that's a grace of God. And no matter what you pursue, whether it's accolades, popularity, successes, wealth, you name it. And I know it like this, because I crave just people heaping encouragements on me. And if that becomes the center, it's almost like that that encouragement, like, Chad, man, that was really good what you did the other day. That's really, it's like it comes in and it satisfies just for a moment, passes through, and it's like, what's the next thing? And we can be junkies looking for attention, looking for all these things, and we weren't created to be filled by those things. And we will never be filled by those things. And when we look to Jesus, we see Jesus, goodness, incarnate God, the visible image of the invisible God, and we see goodness. And if you did a word study on goodness from through the Spirit, it, it speaks a lot about integrity, about an integrated life, about what's 
going on on the outside, what you're acting, what you're doing that's right, matches up with goodness that's on the inside. And we've been talking about this for a while with with many about uh, the integrated soul, that these things grow more and more to be one. And that in each of us, there's a disintegrated soul, that it's, it's been pulled apart, that there's this wrestling inside, that what we say we believe in these other things, they don't match up with what is inside. But as God grows us, we become more whole as human beings. And the power of God yields goodness, growing in us no matter how bad the circumstances are. And I'd love to give you an example from history. This guy's become one of my heroes over the last couple of years. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany in the 1900s. And there's a big, thick biography by Eric McTaxis that you can read. It's way too big, way too thick, but it's there. So it's nothing's wasted in it. He's a great writer. But a little bit about Bonhoeffer's life. He's growing up in Germany. He comes to know Christ. His dad's not a believer, but his, his mom has the Bible read to them. And, and he comes and he just, he's, he's captured by the love of Christ. Feels a calling to be a pastor in the midst of where Hitler is, is rising to power. And, and this church and state and all this stuff just discombobulated. Where as Hitler gains more power and World War II comes on the front, that Bonhoeffer is grieved in his spirit. And he's like, what does it look like to be good amidst such evil? What does it look like to live a full life following God with my heart in the midst of such just, just basic, just pure evil that's going on in my midst? So he takes his life in his own hands. He, he holds secret meetings to, to raise up pastors. And then fascinatingly enough, in asking the question what he was called to do, and he's, he couldn't look to a scripture verse and say, this is what I'm called to do. But he felt led to participate in a plot to uh, assassinate Adolf Hitler. The plot was not successful, but because of it, he was imprisoned and eventually executed three weeks before the war ended. He spent a year and a half in a German prison. And it's interesting, even in that prison, his fiance was, was left outside. That people had such fondness for him and he lived a good life even in that year and a half in prison that the guards had great affection for him. And the prisoners too, he'd lead services, he'd love people. If someone needed counseling, they'd go get Dietrich and and take them to him. One of the last services he performed, he asked an English uh, prisoner before he was gonna, before Dietrich was gonna be taken off to be executed. And he said, if you get out, and get back to England, tell my friend, who's one of the bishops, this. He says, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. And he knew he's marching. And I think as you, if you look into Dietrich's life, he was actually in the United States. He came to meet with some pastors and different things. And if he would have stayed in the U.S., he had every right, his visa was, was legit that he would, he would have lived, but he had such a conviction and a calling from God to go back to Germany, to love the people there, that he went and it cost him his life. In this biography, Eric Taxis writes this, and I've been chewing on this quote for a couple years, and I think I'll chew on it the rest of my life. It's in your notes. But he says this about Bonhoeffer. He says, he, Bonhoeffer, had radically, I'm sorry, he, Bonhoeffer, had theologically redefined the Christian life as something active, not reactive. It had nothing to do with avoiding sin 
or merely talking or teaching or believing theological notions or principles or rules or tenets. It was God's call to be fully human, to live as human beings obedient to the one who had made us, which was the fulfillment of our destiny. It was not a cramped, compromised, circumspect life, but a life lived in a kind of wild, joyful, full-throated freedom. That's what it was to obey God. And as I think about that, Obedience definitely means we're following the ways of God. Definitely means we're avoiding sin and we're doing all these things, but the the wild, full-throated freedom to live. And I I just imagine Jesus, who's the the best example of this. If he would have been walking around with a scroll and Peter's like, hey, we gonna do anything today, Jesus? He's like, no, I'm trying not to sin today. And then tomorrow, the next day, Jesus, are we gonna go do anything? He's like, no, no, hold on. I gotta take this stock captive, okay. It wasn't a circumspect, cramped life for Jesus. He just went, man. Saw people in need, he goes to it. Listens to the Father, he goes over here. Hangs out with what the King James Version calls wine bibbers. He's hanging out with the, the drunkards and the prostitutes and the thieves. He's speaking to the religious leaders. There's a wild, joyful freedom to it. And truly, we're never fully gonna get there on this side of the new heavens and new earth but something to lean into. Jesus is the good shepherd and there's so many reasons we don't experience this full life. And I believe Come Thou Fount, the famous hymn, sums it up really well. It says, this is what is our experience. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But it's followed by a prayer. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above, for your work, for your kingdom. Call me back to yourself. Verse four, Jesus says it like this. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And Jesus, he does not stand behind us with a whip. He goes ahead of us and he invites us. He leads by love. He invites us. There's a lot of problems though because we have this old flesh and our willpower is pretty weak. Most of us make New Year's resolutions or we've given up on it a long time ago. There's like 3% of you who actually follow through with your New Year's resolutions and we don't like you. So just keep it to yourself. Maybe y'all can start a group or something. But you think about it, like our willpower is weak. So New Year's resolutions, they fade pretty fast. And for me personally, like I've been, uh, as I hit my 40s, like, man, I need to just lose a little weight. I, I, I wear baggier shirts, so maybe you can't tell, but around the midsection, I was like, man, I could use 15 pounds off. You know, I try, 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 and couldn't do it. But in the last two weeks, I've lost 15 pounds. And I'm gonna market it to the church in the next year. And it's called the VBS virus. (laughs) All you have to do is serve in VBS, lead some music, and there's a, 20 to 30% chance you'll get a a virus. Guaranteed to make you call out to God. You'll shed some pounds. But that's really what happened to me. I'm still a little staggery right now, even two weeks later. But do you see, the willpower is weak, but I needed an external force to bring it about. It's not the perfect analogy, hey, but it is an analogy. But let me move to something a little more serious here. Many faithful people who love 
God, who love their family, their friends, they hit bumps in life and they may find themselves going to something more than they want to. And there's so many different examples. And I want you to hear me, brothers and sisters, that this can happen to any of us. So there's struggling going on and one glass of wine at night turns into three, then it turns into glasses throughout the day. And then there's alcoholism to be struggled with. Or maybe you have chronic pain or you've, you've had injuries or, or operations and then there becomes uh, abuse of prescription drugs. Or maybe a glance or just, you don't feel like you're getting your needs met or whatever else and a glance turns into pornography one day into a week to months and then time just drags on. It happens. And the truth is with those things in our life, when, when our bodies are enslaving our wills, when our minds are corrupted by our bodies being driven or driving us places we don't wanna go, and there's this statement, Lord, I, this is my last time, Lord, I'll quit tomorrow, this is my last time. And we're trapped and we weren't created to live like that. And the first step in times like that is quite often to reach out for help, to reach out to a safe place, a doctor, a therapist, a counselor, a pastor, and just say, hey, I'm stuck. Knowing that judgment won't come to say, how did you get there? It's like, yeah, we're all prone to go there, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel it. These boots were made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. I don't know why that just came to mind. <laughs> but we're prone to wander, right? And stepping out in faith to say, I need help. And the way we're built is that our will, and even Romans 12, our will would be surrendered to God. Our willpower is so weak, but it can surrender over and over again to God. And Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, he's urging our, our will. Renew your minds. Don't let your minds be corrupted, but let them be renewed with the beauty and the truth of God. And then present your bodies as living sacrifice, this spiritual act of worship. This is saying, God, you're worth more than the things of this earth. And truly, if we long for full life, that's what we'll do. But it's hard. At its core, goodness is about seeking life in a world that's filled with death, sharing hope in a world that's filled with despair, shining light in a world that's filled with darkness and seeking flourishing in a world where everything's falling apart. And I love Psalm 73. It's a Psalm of Asaph where he, he says, I've almost given up, almost gave up, almost spoke against God. The circumstances around him are terrible, terrible. But at the end of the Psalm, he says this, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Another translation I memorized years ago is that the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. And can we see that when God feels distant, when he looks bad, sin looks good. That's just the way our, our, our flesh works. But to say, Lord, even in the midst of all this, Lord, I believe, help me believe that your nearness is my good, Lord. Help me to live into that reality. But for that to happen, we have to be anchored. And so let's briefly look at the anchor of goodness. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep 
and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The anchor of goodness, how we stay grounded, how we see the fruit of the Spirit produced in our life is by being anchored in Christ. Jesus, he says, my sheep. Later on that passage, he says, the one the Father's given me, no one can snatch them from his hand. If you're in Christ, you're secure. My sheep. Jesus says, you're my sheep, my child. There's also this, my sheep know me. There's this invitation to intimacy. He knows everything about you. Jesus knows you. He sees you and he wants you. He invites you. And he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, so my sheep, I know them and they know me. And it seems almost ludicrous, like, Jesus, are you inviting me into this intimate relationship that will somehow look like what the triune God looks like? He's saying, yeah, come on, come on. Do you see that God is for you? Do you see that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Nothing in all eternity, nothing in all creation. Do you see that he will never leave you or forsake you? Do you see that he's called you and your most important identity in Christ is that you are a beloved child of the king. You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. For now and eternity, that is your reality. Do you see he's given you an eternal family? Do you see his everlasting love will always go and it's better than life? Do you see that he has a call on your life, that he's inviting you to follow you, follow him and, and to live into this life that he has for you? Do you see that it's gonna be hard? You know it's hard. I joke sometimes, I say, hey, the Christian life's not hard, guys. The Christian life's not hard. The Christian life's impossible to live in your own strength. But God made it like that on, a pur- on purpose so that we would seek his face, so we would depend on him. And ultimately we see this, he's the pearl of great price. And if we doubt that Jesus loves us, we have to continue to go back to the cross. When we're despairing in our sin, I've heard a pastor say like this, for every time we look at our sin introspectively, and it's important to take self-examination, but every time we look at our sin, we look to the cross 10 times, over and over again. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. He bore the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, past, present, and future sin, separated from God the Father as God turns his face, as the wrath comes down. And through Jesus' life, through his work, through his death, through his resurrection, and now through his empowering presence, he lives in and through us. And he is our anchor. I have just a, a brief illustration, and then we'll partaking communion. I, I heard this illustration years ago and it, the pastor trying to drive home what it means to shift from duty in the Christian life to delight in the Christian life. And the pastor tells it like this, and I, I just put it in the first person. I go home. I've been married to my wife for 11 years now and knock on the front door and she comes to the door and she's like, Chad, what are you doing? You live here. And I was like, babe, I got a sitter. I'm taking you out on a date. And she's like, oh, no way. And I've got flowers for you. Boom. She's like, man, why did you do this, Chad? And then I say this. 
What's my duty as a husband? The guy down the street did it, and I knew I need to get it over with, so let's go. You know, and she shuts the door, and I walk on alone. That's, that's duty. That doesn't really foster relational intimacy, does it? Well, let's do the same illustration, different way. Knock on the door, ring the doorbell. I don't remember which one I did, but she comes to the door. Hey, Chad, what are you doing? You live here, you got keys. It's like, I know, babe, I'm taking you on a date. I got a sitter, here's some flowers. She's like, oh, this is awesome, Chad. Why do you do this? Why'd you do this? And I say, babe, because I love you. Nothing makes me more joyful than seeing you filled with joy. So let's go. She's like, all right, let's go. So much in the Christian life, especially early on and, and throughout our life, it feels like duty. And if we look only at the law and not the giver of the law, we'll just stay in that, that rut. But God's invitation is, know my heart, see my affections for you. Let me grow this heart in you. And as we grow, and I say now more than I did 10 years ago, five years ago, just, Lord, I long to delight in you. I long to do what you say, not because it earns anything. It doesn't earn love. It doesn't earn salvation. It's been given freely. I wanna do it because you love me. And I know that that fills you with joy, simple acts of faith. And there are times in our life where delight seems a million miles away. We say, Lord, help me to want to want you. Help me to follow you. And we were reminded that he is the anchor. He is the anchor. He gives us his hope as an anchor for our soul. And to summarize, just thinking about his work is never done. Romans 8, 28 through 30. I won't read it, but just to remind you a few high points. God works all things together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. There's so much in this world that's not good, but he takes even the bad, works them for good in our lives, for those who love him, been called according to his purpose, and he, he conforms us into the image of Christ. He lets us depend on him, see his heart, grow in him, and there is a future glory to come. He asks us to be reminded, and so weekly here at, at Sojourn, we take bread and we break it like he did. And we're reminded that he was broken for us. It's his love on the cross, that he was the good shepherd. He laid down his life for us. He shed his blood for us. He set up this new covenant where he has done the work and he invites us into life with God. And our tradition here is for those who are followers of Christ, to, to break off a piece of the bread, to dip it into the juice or wine, whichever your conscience permits, and be reminded of his heart for you and that he is your anchor. If you're not a Christian, we, we see the scriptures say, don't take communion, but our invitation is different to come and think and reflect, how is life working for me? Do I have a good life? Does my soul feel satisfied? And as we talk and we pray, we'll look to Jesus and just say, Consider these things. Let's pray together.